Welcome to the Double Deuce Podcast, an amazing show that lasts only 22 minutes and is for you, the listener. So soak it up. So here are your two big beer hosts, Will Averill and Nelson. Hey, Will, hit the timer. Fuck it! Damn it! Hey guys, it's Nelson. We're doing something different this week, but it's not a decadeuce, in case you didn't read the notes or anything, or the title of the episode. It's not a decadeuce. It's, it's Will doing a, a fancy literary-style reading of a short story of his that's, that's spooky and fall and folly, autumn It's good for you. It's, it's, it's about the little libraries, the little libraries you see growing up out there, growing up out of the seeds of other people's kindness and love for books and carpentry. And this one is the littlest one, and, and it's in West Lawrence for all you Lawrence heads out there. And I, I realize that I'm not I'm not in this a lot, but that's why I did a little intro for you. And and for those of you who who require my voice because they've got the things in them, the things in them that therapy has yet to fix, and so they use my voice to to do the things that people do with ASMR. You know, whatever it is you're doing with ASMR, they do it with my voice. Well, here I am, those people. Don't rest rest easy. I'm still here doing this thing with my voice. So you can do whatever it is you do, which is fine. Stop emailing me, but it's fine. And if you really want to hear me just talking and talking by myself, to nobody. Well, the Patreon, that's for you. But for those of you who want to hear a good a good short story read by a master storyteller, well, The Littlest Pet Shop in West Lawrence by Will Averill, performed by Will Averill, is coming at you, is coming at you right now. I'm excited. I haven't heard it yet either. I'm recording this before I've even heard it. But still, I'm going to give it um, 4.5 spookies out of 5 spookies with an, with an extra, um, I don't know, candy. The metaphor is running thin, so let's get to the story where the metaphors will all run thick. Thick metaphors. Nothing but the thickest metaphors for you, our listeners. I'm Nelson. Here comes Will. With that, that good, good storytelling. That good storytelling. All right, some more people hit back to the beginning right now. The rest of you story time. Story time. The littlest free library in West Lawrence. Here's Will. Fuck it! Damn it! The littlest free library of West Lawrence. Down by the river in Old West Lawrence, there's this house with little free library, and that's where this all started. I live just off the nice part of the neighborhood on 9th and Illinois in a shitty little apartment duplex that's one of the few places in town will rent to me. I have a couple of DUIs, an eviction that wasn't my fault, and a long history of not getting along with the cops. I jump jobs a bunch, but luckily this town has no shortage of jobs that pay in the $12 to $15 an hour range in the service industry and convenience stores. So I managed to do okay between that and a little money from the folks. I don't need much. I got used to living cheaply when I was a college student. 
I put myself through school, which wasn't really that hard. Got fucked up most nights and drugged myself into class the next day, all shaky and smelling of cigarettes and booze. They let me go for about five years on a combination of part-time jobs and student loans and then kicked me to the curb. It was okay. I was pretty much done with it. There comes a point where you realize that there is a level of learning solely so that academics can justify their jobs. I was delighted to get out of there. Anyway... I'm washing dishes at a new joint downtown, a place I haven't fouled yet, and I'm getting home, I'm reading and expanding my mind and getting fucked up whenever possible. It's a pretty good life, you know? I can get food at work, either on the discount, if I have money, or on the down low when times are rough, and some sorority girl takes two bites off her low main and there's a whole bunch left. I found that keeping a Ziploc baggie uh, on me for, can keep my fridge stocked for days. More money for beer. I'd like to get out and walk, though. I don't own a TV. I have a battered second-hand iPad, which I sometimes use to watch movies, but mostly I read. The iPad moves slowly because Amon from work put a bunch of porn on it. He thought he got it off there, but it wasn't. He didn't empty the recycling. It was the modern equivalent of finding a bunch of porn in the woods. It can help on lonely nights, but it does cause most shows to buffer once or twice while playing, which gets annoying. I don't have much money, so the library is always a great resource. However, the whole rhythm of checking things out and back takes way more executive function than I currently got. So I check some shit out that I haven't returned, and they won't let me do it again until I pay for the books. I mean, it's fair, but it is tough. So I scope for little free libraries wherever I go. Now, there are several good ones in West Lawrence. There's, like, professors and shit there. So along with the battered John Grisham novels and the unread copies of The Firm and other lawyer books, you can sometimes find a sweet book on economics or maybe some obscure title that just takes you on a hell of a ride. The upside is that you can enjoy the journey when you find a, a new one to mine. The downside is that little free libraries are pretty slow to turn over, hence you need to be willing to broaden your search to other parts of town or else you're limited to a library about the same 40 books over and over. It's November, and the first real cold is starting to hit. The city is covered in a leafy carpet, and man, oh man, does it smell amazing. I am doing my usual rounds, and I pop down to the north side of 6th Street. It's technically Old West Lawrence, but it's like Old West Lawrence plus, like Old, Old West Lawrence. Crossing 6th Street means taking your life into your hands, but I'm deft and I move quickly and I manage to frogger my way across that shit. On the other side, I head up Louisiana for a block and then head west. I'm wandering the neighborhoods lost in thought when I look up and see the weirdest little free library I have ever seen. Get this. House is grand but dilapidated, a multi-story kind of gothic-looking giant with spires on the sides and a bunch of faux English woodwork on the front. Stones run roughly to hip height, above that a deep, rich scarlet paint job, worn to a dirty pink from the sun. The place seems ready to burst out from the middle, as you can almost hear it groan on its foundation, and the windows are all closed and curtained. The stunted gravel driveway juts out from the side of the house like an awkward mooring rope securing it to the road. A dented mailbox with no name or address leans drunkenly beside the curb, weeds ripping about halfway up the post. The place is wrecked and weird. The Little Free Library is the weirdest thing, though. Unlike the tight professional libraries on the south side of 6th Street in New Old West Lawrence, this Little Free Library appears to be built on a cairn of limestone rocks. They're piled up thick, about three feet high, and a library is propped on top of them. One side is uneven, and PBR cans have been jammed between the rocks and the wooden library box, somehow staying up even though it's a windy day. 
Whereas most little free libraries have a huge window you can access and view the books through, this little free library has one small yellow window like one of those World War II pillboxes. I approach it, taking a few glances at the house in disbelief. I'm pretty sure that I'm on some kind of pranked show, but nobody appears. The street is quiet off the main thoroughfares. I haven't seen a car coming down this way. It almost seems like traffic is dimmer here, nor are there any sounds of nature. It's like a preternatural silence surrounds this section of the road. It's freaking me the fuck out. However, I'm more curious than I am unnerved, so I decide to investigate it further. I gingerly rub my fingers over the glass, trying to clear it a little bit to have a better look. Seems like all I do is smear the dust around. However, despite being so precariously balanced, the library seems to hold up to the gentle push I give it. I take a step back and examine the whole thing again. The house with its overgrown garden, strange bulge, drawn curtains, the cairn with the library looks like something out of a joke show or a young adult Halloween special. I look around once more, feeling like maybe I'm the idiot here, but no one steps out to tell me I've been pranked, so I decide I'm just going to check out a book. I open up the library and have a peek around. There's the usual collection of unread and unloved person finance and self-help books, a couple of what look like boys' adventure books from the 1950s and several worn paperback Clive Cussler novels. I run my hands over them, flipping them quickly to ensure I get all the titles with a professional eye of an experienced free library connoisseur. About halfway through, I notice something that stops me. It's a thin paperback, almost like the battered copies of Slaughterhouse-Five we were handed at high school. Cover is a collection of sepia farm imagery with the stylized face of an older woman with graying hair pulled into a tight bun. Below it, facing the other direction, is a young bearded man with intense eyes and a scar running down his cheek. Embossed, the top of the front cover is the title West of Paradise and the author's name, John Steinbeck. A tagline in italic bolded font beneath goes, When all hope was lost, they need a new home. I pulled it out quickly. I hadn't read much Steinbeck, just the usual suspects of mice and men and grapes of wrath. But reading the summary, the further adventures of Joad family upon reaching California, I flipped through it. The paper is brown with age, but the book's overall quality is surprisingly good. I flipped back to the front, curious about the copyright date. I've heard some of the Steinbeck, but never of this particular book. While well, there's a lengthy introduction about the importance of me forgetting the Dust Bowl by a professor I've never heard of, I can't find the copyright, even in Roman numerals. I feel like there are eyes on me, so I look up at the house again, just in time to see a curtain swing back into place in one of the upstairs windows. I take two steps back, the door of the little free library with its yellowed window snapping back into place as I take my hands away. I scoot a few steps, still staring at the window, and then turn and hastily make my way the fuck out of there. On my way home, I stop at Rick's place, ordering a beer from the bored and relentlessly attractive bartender there. He never remembers my name, but I think he likes me just the same. I grab my beer. While Rick's place is more expensive than some other bars around here, it has PBR on tap, and there's never anyone there in the afternoon, and head outside. I sit at a wooden pub bench, shake a Paul Mall out of the battered pack in my jacket pocket, push a lighter out of my jeans pocket, drop the book on the table, using my hand as a windbreak, light up the smoke. I take a long, glorious drag. When you've been smoking for a while, the first drag is the only drag of the day that even remotely replicates the first time. I look at the book. 
The binding seems to have a few cracks indicating it has yet to be read or if it has been only once or twice. There's no price on it, either on a sticker or in the book's printing. I flip through it, just feeling and examining it. At the back is an ad, the kind that a lot of these books from the time had. If you enjoyed this book, you'll enjoy so many others in the Penguin Young Adult Reader series, it states out loud in a bold font. There are a collection of titles and authors beneath it, most of whom I need to recognize. Still, there's another Steinbeck in there, Kirk Vonnegut Jr. book that's not Slaughterhouse-Five, a Beverly Cleary somehow, and a Stephen Crane short story collection. All pretty dull stuff. I flip back to the front and start to read. Upon reaching California, it goes, Tom Joad felt both uplifted and furious. The journey had been long, and the losses too many to bear. I kept reading, and it didn't take long until I was wholly swept up in it. The language was dense and beautiful, the scenes sweeping and expertly told. I continued reading through three more beers. I'd have to head to the center tomorrow to donate a little earlier than I'd like, but no problem. After finishing my afternoon beers, I headed back to the house. I threw some leftover pizza in the microwave, still reading, and sat as the afternoon light filtered through the living room's dirty window, sending a dusky yellow haze across the wall and battered carpet, settling particles of dust in sharp relief and warming the room with its lazy glow. I read until I had to turn the light on and finished about 3 a.m., having stopped only to load and smoke a bowl and piss once. The story was heartbreaking. The death of Tom Joad mirrors Ma Joad's demise and Grapes of Wrath. Only it was Tom's dream to bring unionization to the wilds of California and a society just emerging from the horrors of the Dust Bowl. The sharp racial undertones with the Chinese railway workers made a statement on the myth of the United States as a melting pot. It was darker and more scathing tone than I remembered from my high school reading of Grapes of Wrath. It was so dark and beautiful, and I didn't understand why I'd never picked it up. So, what the hell? Life's too short to worry about that shit, so I grabbed a beer and thought about what I'd just read and didn't get to sleep till 6 a.m., then up at 9 a.m. to wash fucking dishes. The dishwashing routine is meditative, and you can get over being a failure of the capitalist system. It's the perfect job. The goals are straightforward and direct. Wash dishes. The pace is constant, but not nearly as stressful as all the shit on the line. People think of you as a loser and a pariah, and therefore leave you alone. Like I said, you can beg for your food if you're quiet about it. Occasionally, though, some asshole line cook wants to be your friend and won't fucking shut up. Jeremy, a real talkative dude, some theater dude, got me reading a book in the kitchen once. And now he won't shut up about books now. I mean, I like reading, but I fucking hate analyzing reading. Everyone wants to read their own shit into books. That's what I love about books. It's not like movies or TV where 200 people have the same say in what happens. It's like a close-up, sit-down conversation with the writer. You're the only two people in the world, and the rest of the world just fades away into imagination and shit. When you talk about it, you start parsing it. And when you start parsing it, you kill the magic. None of that shit bothers Jeremy, though. He likes to talk about everything. He calls me and everyone else in the kitchen, even the women. Hey, man, he says, approaching me and slapping me on the back. How's it hanging? When I don't immediately respond, he follows up. I mean, you dick, he goes. I shake my head. This doesn't stop him. What are you reading? Oh, all right, here we go. Uh, I just finished West of Paradise by John Steinbeck, I replied. He scratches up his face tight and shakes his head a few times, cocks it to the side, I'll think. Never heard of that one, he goes. But I was in a production of Grapes of Wrath in college. I played Uncle John. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, he starts a congregation outside Pasadena. Uh, it takes on Chinese folks working the railway. He becomes kind of their hero. Oh, I never heard that, Mom goes. Yeah, but then he gets caught by some white dudes and mad that he's stirring up trouble. Huh, goes Jeremy. He thinks, you, you sure that's a thing? Read it in the book, I say. I like to read that book. I never heard of it. I like to read what happens. 
I agree to bring it in, knowing that I never will. Ahmed says thanks, knowing I won't as well. The day draws to its inexorable conclusion. I'm throwing my apron in the hamper at the end of the line and clocking out when Jeremy jabs me. Don't forget that book, he laughs and pulls a cigarette from behind his ear. He strides back to the open back door, bangs it open, and dramatically holds it while I head past him and down the stairs to the alley. We are the goddamn kings of this town, he says, lighting a smoke with a quick depth motion and inhaling loudly. He cries as he exhales, the goddamn kings. I nod and head down the alley towards the right street. I think about that book and the little free library it came from. I decided I'd like to check that place out again. I cut right on 7th, cross by the public library, stop and wheel around on a whim. I head into the library. It smells, as it always does, of books and body odor, with a hint of industrial cleaner to cover up the smells of books and body odor. I head past the information desk, nodding at the cute redhead with the bob cut and big lips working at the desk and head over to the computers by the accounts. The gal behind the accounts desk is reading a book. She's in her 40s with long blonde hair and glasses, which fall slightly down her nose as she bends her head to read. The computers are set up for a search, so I take one guilty look back and start typing. I'm not welcome here because of my propensity for not returning shit. I type in West of Paradise under the book name. The computer gets stuck in search mode for a long time, and when a listing comes up, I get a brief chill, thinking here's the mystery solved, but it's for a book by some lady named Gwen Davis from 1998. I look up Steinbeck and get a listing of his books and look over them one by one, and the thing needs to be listed. I'm super confused now, and my instinct is to just head out and go home and smoke a bowl and not worry about any of this. However, I'm here, so I look over at the accounts gal, still reading her book, a strand of blonde hair that's snuck out of her ponytail, framing the side of her face, and I start to walk over. Every step seems nearly impossible, and I almost turn back several times, but I stay the course and approach the desk. Excuse me, I go. She looks up. She's wearing a yellow cardigan over a red library t-shirt, which matches her red frame glasses, and her name tag says Sarah. She looks like someone famous, but I can't think of who, and she has this dazzling smile that kind of comes out of nowhere and throws me completely off. Hi, how can I help? I look at her name tag, which says Sarah, and then I realize it looks like I'm staring at her boobs, so I look up super quick, and I attempt to smile. Still, it just comes out as a grimace upturned at the lips. I realize I smell like fucking breakfast food, and I'm super embarrassed all of a sudden, and I just want to turn around and run, but I'm doing this. Uh, hi, yeah, um, I am looking for a book. We have those, she goes, smiling. What book do you have in mind? Uh, I, uh, it, it's, it's one by Steinbeck, I replied. The best ones always are, she says. Yeah, well, this one is called West to Paradise. She pats some keys. She has a really mellow key-tapping style. Many people bang keyboards like drums and try to make as much noise as possible to tell you they are doing work. Sarah lets the fingers glide from key to key with a gentle depress. It's more artistry than just form and function. I've got a West of Paradise by Gwen Davis, she goes, but I'm not seeing one by Steinbeck, and honestly, I don't remember ever having heard of it. I, I have a copy in my house right now. Oh, she goes, well, then it sounds like you may have solved your problem. Isn't that a little weird? She looks at me for a second, and it's a look I've seen, and incredulity usually followed with, you sure you're okay to just, just be a dishwasher, just live in a one-room bedroom, just have a small secondhand television? She's looking at me like I'm a crazy person. 
It's cool. Yeah, I, I think I may have. Thank you. I throw a hand up half-heartedly and back away, turning and shaking my head on the way out. At this point, I am really fucking confused and a little bit annoyed, fucking confused by the fact that this book doesn't seem to exist anywhere, and I'm annoyed that whenever I try to function in a social situation, I come across as King Kooky. It's not like I even care what people think, but I'd like to be able to hide sometimes, to blend in, instead of constantly standing out. And tall, by the way, that's probably another reason for it, like stupid tall. Like six foot six by the time I hit college, I invariably have to feel the, you must be good good at basketball. I'm not, just to be precise. I never liked it, I think, because so many people said I should be good at it. I like skateboarding, but I could have improved at it. I could ollie a little bit, but that's about it. I had glasses, which held me back because my mother always told me, we can't afford another pair of glasses. Please be careful. I wish she'd been meaner about it. It would have made it so much easier to rebel against, but that please always stuck with me, so I gave up on sports. I avoided taking too many risks and avoided any situation where I might accidentally destroy my glasses. These thoughts are banging around in my head. I don't even pay much attention to where my feet are taking me, and I come out on the other side of 6th Street, just about a block down from the little free library. What the hell, I think. I must have been coming here for a reason. I head down the block and back towards the tucked-in neighborhood where I found it. It's getting towards sunset, and the light is streaming in behind me on the porch of the strange, bulging house as I approach it. The curtains on all the windows are drawn, as they were yesterday. I look at it for a while, examining it as if by staring at it, I might somehow put myself inside it. It's not a well-kept house by any means, but it's not precisely decrepit. As we move towards autumn, a few leaves are dotted on the grass, which is overgrown, except where it's slightly yellowed and dead in spots. A thin patch of dirt around the house indicates someone had the idea of a garden in mind at some point. Carpet of weeds, occasional leaves, and bits of trash poking through shows this garden hasn't been worked on in some time. No toys in the yard, no garden boxes, no signs of the hipster back-to-nature progress that are so prevalent on this side of town. Just a bland, slightly overgrown lawn with a cairn with a little free library on it balanced in part on a PBR can. I go back to the library, open it up. It looks pretty much the same as yesterday. There seems to be no sort of run on this little free library. The Grishams and the economic textbooks are still there. I'm flipping through them like I did on the previous day when I flip onto a small hardbound blue book with embossed gold lettering on the front and spine. The Siblings Dance, or The Lamentable Tale of Stephen and Mary by William Shakespeare, it says. I pull it out and flip it open to a page somewhere in the third act, scanning it quickly, but man, it's fucking Shakespeare, and I don't know enough about plays to understand what's happening. There are entrances, exunts, and some character with speeches about duplicitous actions and betrayals. I flip back to the beginning with the briefest of introductions by some Shakespeare scholar about the importance of historical plays in the canons of the Bard's work. It also has a cast list, but no copyright date or other identifying information. I look up back at the house. It reveals nothing. I pull the small blue book out and clutch the tome, moving quickly and looking back often to the house and its janky library. It's when I cross six that I feel a bit better. The traffic, the movement of people give me a sense of anonymity, blending into the crowd. I stop at Cork and Barrel on the way home, get a tall boy of Foster's, the cheapest beer I can get, and head home. Pulling some uneaten, delicious quiche in a Ziploc out of my pocket, I microwave it, pop the beer, and sit down on the couch to read. It's hard work, and I find myself at times having to stop and reread lines like four or five times just to figure out what the fuck is happening. Still, it's the story of this queen and her brother who thinks he should be king, and so rolls some troops out and tries to capture her, only to have her get away with the help of this dashing young earl. She loves this earl, but she can't hook up with him because she needs to save herself for political marriage. Still, they're all 
always living in fear that Stephen, the prince who wants to be king, will have them exiled or killed, so they hook up anyway. Then Mary has to back up and get exiled and let her brother win because it's not cool for her to be queen. After all, she likes to fuck. It ends with her delivering this long-ass monologue about duty, honor, and the price of love. The Earl kills himself because, well, Shakespeare. You don't see that, though. You just hear about it. That monologue is beautiful. I'll give it that. And after like four hours of reading this thing, I'm tearing up at the end of it. I think it's part tears of frustration because it has taken me so fucking long to get through this play. But it's also tears of sadness for her. I can get isolation. I can get duty. I can get the honor. But I wonder why anyone would want to be king. All kings seem depressed, homicidal, and insane from years of inbreeding. Or maybe all three. That is no way to live. I'm juiced after reading the play, and it's only like 1.30 a.m., so I head out for a walk to clear my head. I grab the book and take it with me to hold on to it to be close. I wander around downtown. The bars are letting out, so there are a lot of shitheads on the street. Still, apart from the occasional shouts about my height, which I'm more than used to, people ignore me, and it's pretty fantastic people watching. It's chilly out, but not cold, and it's still early in the fall, so the students' newness of college is not worn off. The ones going to drop out are just realizing they're in way over their heads and trying to drink to get through. The air is festive and optimistic and also very, very messy. I dodge weaving drunks and think about the play and the events of the last few days, and I'm starting to maybe come up with a plan. Unfortunately, it involves talking to Jeremy. I think about trying to get a hold of him tonight, but my phone is low on battery. I'm broke, so I just head back to the apartment, checking the wheat fields dumpsters on the way home. But there's no joy there, so it's home and hit the couch for me. I'm not tired, so I read about half of that Shakespeare play again. The closer I am to falling asleep, the more sense the whole thing makes. I wake up the next day vaguely remembering a dream where I'm standing in the middle of a vast theater in doublet and hose about to give a monologue. I'm trying to remember what it's about. It's weird. Jeremy's sick the next day, so I spend the whole day with the script in my pocket, pulling it out when I'm caught up and reading it here and there. I grab a golf pencil off the line and start making a few passages under the auspices uh, that it's stuff I can show to Jeremy later, and there are some great lines in it. Once work's over, I slip out of the walk-in with a Ziploc full of near-expired green beans in my pocket and make my way back to the library. I'm checking the accounts desk to make sure Sarah is not there. I don't want to seem to be the weird guy two days in a row. This town is too small to get a reputation like that. She's not, so I approach the dude behind the info counter and ask about the play. My suspicion is confirmed. There is no play in the library by that name. I run downstairs, check on a computer, and check a couple of quotes. Nothing. I end up falling down a weird rabbit hole about the folios. I don't know if you know this. Still, Shakespeare had like different versions of his shit than other people put together. They all have a slightly different version of the material, and it's a whole thing, but none of them reference this play, and I exit dazed as the sun starts to fall. I found out where Jeremy lived from Psycho J, so I popped by his house on the way home. He answered the door in a battered gray robe that's tied way too loose, exposing a broad swath of his hairless chest and stomach, his eyes bloodshot. The guy's bags have bags, and I wonder if he doesn't sleep like me, but it seems impolite to ask. It's Lawrence, man. Everyone is on something. They send you after me, he goes. I shake my head. He stares at me for a second and pulls the door open and beckons with the other hand. He's limping a little, and about every second step, he'll take a sharp breath like he's in immense pain. I ask about it. Broke my dick, he goes. Word to arise, short round. Don't beat off with an unknown lubricant. I should mention that he calls me short round, like the Indiana Jones character, because I'm tall and thin. He, he thinks it's a great joke. Dudes in their 30s in this town don't make it without some sick sense of humor and a whole lot of baggage. That's an actual fact. You do plays, right? 
I go. He laughs and winces. Damn short. It's amazing how your body is wired up. Like, I can feel this shit from my toes to my chin. Please don't make me laugh again. Okay. Okay, I reply. He collapses into a beaten up brown sofa set up in his living room. I would have killed for this place in high school, but nobody old enough to have a kid in college should ever have to live like this. It's a lot like my place. All furniture that doesn't match, a musty smell that's part weed, part cigarette smoke, part underwashing and no cleaning. The gloaming casts a dull blue light through dirty shades, two of which have broken in half and hang sadly by the poles. Yes, is the answer. Yes, I do plays, Amon says twice for emphasis. I have a play, I say. You wrote a play? He looks at me weirdly, like maybe a short round of some kind of idiot savant or something. No, no, I have a play, a play that I found, a Shakespeare play. Uh, okay, okay, I don't usually direct Shakespeare, he says sternly. My friend sometimes does. I'm not asking for you should direct it. I'm asking, is it a play? I say and throw the small heart back at him. He shifts, snagged it pretty deftly for an old guy. He's like in his 30s or 40s or something and winces. My fucking dick. Sorry, I go. It's pretty funny, though, so I, I don't exaggerate. He scans the back cover with a practiced air of nonchalance. Then he runs his hand up and down the spine and over the gold lettering. Weird, man. He goes, this printing, the Penguin Hardbound, they only did these for a couple of years back in like the late 70s. Was it part of a folio, I ask? He looks up appraising me, nods. Yeah, they were first folio reprints. I went to the library, I said. I looked up the first folio. I didn't know there was a first folio at the time. I'm not a theater type or whatever, but this play wasn't in there. He nods. That tracks. He opens it and reads a bit. Gets absorbed. I strum my fingers on my knee for a bit, rocking in this uncomfortable-ass chair, which manages to be both too stiff and too plush simultaneously. I watch the taillights of cars head up 11th Street through the broken blinds. Lots of traffic for this time of day. Must be a game or something tonight. Somewhere a cat yelps, encountering an old enemy, a possum or skunk. The hum of electricity and traffic and also a constant around my house lulls me into a doze. I'm starting to nod off after a while when the book hits me in the chest. It hurts. Jeremy's up and standing over me. The book is lying squarely on my chest. He's changed into a ratty Guns N' Roses t-shirt with a flannel unbuttoned over the top. Ripped jeans and boots. He's in obvious pain, but there's something in his eyes, something wild. Where did you get this? I rub my chest and pull the book towards my body. A little free library? Like fourth in like Illinois? I don't know. Come on, he says, we're going. He's quiet on the way, hobbling and looking back and forth. It's just turning from the heat of August to the less dense and human mildness of fall, and the leaves are in the beginning stages of changing. Fall is my favorite time of year in Lawrence. The students are still new and stupid, so lots of wild shit happens. The leaves paint these tapestries in the sky above you, and every day is just a little bit different for a while. You would never know the world would be like when you walk through it. Then winter and four months of sameness. Lamentable. That play... It shouldn't be here, Jeremy goes. What do you mean? I mean, it's not a play. Shakespeare wrote 12 history plays. Siblings Dance is not fucking one of them. I watch a battered Buick LeSabre way past his expiration date roll by 6th Street. The window is down and a kid has his hand out feeling the breeze. Too few people do that these days and it's sad. Life has gotten sterile when messiness is far more fun. So the question then is why? Why does someone go to the trouble of forging this just to put it in a little free library? I mean, a couple of things. It's good play. It's no Hamlet, sure, but the histories were, with the possible exception of the two parts of Henry IV and Henry V, generally pretty balls-ass boring. And this is the weirdest part. It's a pretty great representation of Shakespeare's style. You heard of iambic pentameter? 
I nod. It's like about how the words are written, like poetry. Ten syllables per line, the accent always on the second syllable, like, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks. Hear that? Well, here's the thing. Shakespeare wrote mainly like that, but not always. He'd sometimes break it. It's wild when and how, because it doesn't make much sense unless you're a Shakespeare scholar, which I am not. I'm more of an interested in amateur and theater aficionado. So I guess what I'm saying is whoever wrote this thing forges a good fucking Shakespeare. Why would, why would you do that just to put it in a little free library? Oh my God, short round. You're doing it. You're asking the big questions. He is walking at this kind of insane pace. Aren't you in massive pain? Don't worry about it, he goes. I took some oxy. We haul ass down Fifth Street till we hit Illinois and then hang a right. As we approach the block, I start to get a little nervous. Something feels off. Okay, okay, where? I look around. Really look. The other couple of times I've been here, I've been paying almost no attention, lost in my thoughts. I have yet to really clock the rest of the block. Looking at it for real, I'm disoriented with the changing leaves all muted to an ominous blue in the dark. The only light coming from the moon and the street light emit an eerie purple glow. This doesn't look right, and I need help finding a little free library. Jeremy sees me looking around, and he's on it. Is this not the right block? This is the right block. Is it further down, maybe? His eyes are wide open, and there's a look of hope so over the top, and it seems like it could edge into laughter or tears or violence at the drop of a hat. I look around again, desperately trying to find something to orient me. The big house with the closed curtains, the spires, and the bulge in the middle are not there. The cairn is not there, and the library is not there. This is the right block and place, but it is just not there. Talk to me, Short. Is this not the place or what? I nod, dazed. It's the place. This is the place. And he spreads his hands wide, indicating the obvious. There is nothing here. Yeah, I go. There is nothing here, because there wasn't. He stares at me for a long time. The thin buzz of the street lamp and the hum of traffic on 6th Street are the only sounds of the world. The unpleasant smell of the river trickles down the back of my throat, a scent of decay and decomposition. The whole world seems like a prison at that moment, and I'm suffocating. Then Jeremy breaks into laughter. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, shit. Shorty, you had me going. I chuckled despite myself in relief. Fuck it, that was good. You're a good writer, man. He points at the book and then hits me in the chest, staring at me. It's harder than it needs to be, but I'm happy he's not beating the shit out of me. Oh, free library. Fuck. Well, I thought, well, I don't know what I thought. I start to come out of the daze and I'm a little pissed. It was it was here. Okay, okay, uh, I get it. It was here. Trick or treat or whatever. No, right there, I point. This house, this kind of sun-bleached red that was almost pink, bulged in the middle. It was right there. I swear, I am not fucking with you. He starts to walk away. Listen, guy, I'm in a lot of pain. And I don't know what you wanted to fuck with me for, but congrats, you did. You got me. I'm going to hobble home, pull on my girlfriend's panties because they are the only thing I can wear that won't cause my dick unspeakable agony. Let me know if you ever decide to write a play that isn't a weird Shakespeare knockoff or an obscure one. Otherwise, when we see each other at work, this never happened, and leave me the fuck alone. He hobbles off. I suppose I could catch up with him, but I don't. What would be the point? He's obviously pissed off, and I will not be able to do anything about that. I look back down the road, a couple of ranch houses flanked by older, grander houses. Seemed like the little free library was just on the end of the road where the house's next door's property leaks onto an unused green space that ends in trees just north of the river. It's not there. There is nothing there. I just started walking. I don't end up going home. I, I walk downtown just to be surrounded by some folks. I don't want to be alone right now, but I don't really want to have uh, anyone. But I don't really have anyone to talk to. I stand outside a few bars for a minute, half dazed, half thinking about going in, but nothing seems right. I end up ducking into the replay at the end of the day because I feel like a beer might be good. I got a few bucks from when I got money out in case I needed to buy Jeremy a beer. 
There is, of course, a cover, but I'm not much of a drinker. I, I suddenly find myself not having to buy Jeremy a beer, so I figure it's cool to support an artist. It's only three bucks, so I pay it, grab a tall boy from the front bar, and plop myself down. I pull the Shakespeare book and look at it again. The Siblings' War, or the Tale of Stephen and Mary. Scanning through it, I find a soliloquy, the one that struck me earlier. While lamenting that his sister has escaped him again, Stephen seems bent on taking the throne. I mean, with Shakespeare writing all this shit for Queen Elizabeth, it makes sense that he would be upping the reign of a female monarch. Still, Mary in this play is cast as a cartoonish villain, a rugged beauty with a biting tongue. She uses that tongue to trap the Duke of Somerset, wrapping him around her finger and using him. The monologue is in the third act, and I just start reading it aloud, savoring the sounds. It's weird. The words seem to jump off the page. It reads pretty sweet on the page, but aloud it is magical, containing the sounds in perfect order so that the mouth feels like it said them before, like Shakespeare has tapped into some kind of collective muscle memory. It is a tapestry of anger and regret, a lament for lost childhood wrapped in a threatening veil of the pursuit of power. In short, a pretty amazing-ass speech. What's that you're reading? I look up. She's a little older than me, wearing a rat t-shirt and jeans with long red hair and curls spilling down to her shoulders. Sounds like Shakespeare, she continues. Are you an actor? I shake my head. I'm a dishwasher. Well, we all have to do something. Mind if I sit? I shake my head again. She plops down or drinks some sort of a Coke and something in a tall glass, nearly spilling as it hits the table. She looks at it and laughs. It's a sweet and genuine laugh, and I decide at that moment I really like her. It's only my second day of drinking. Would you believe it? I shake my head again, feeling out of my element. She laughs again. You're right not to. Oh, that it was so. So what is a dishwasher doing in a bar reading Shakespeare? I shrug. It's a long story. She purses her lips, takes a drink through a tiny cocktail straw, and looks at me. I got time. I tell her the story. I stumble at first, but then I launch into the whole thing. I figure, what the hell? I don't know too many people in town. I don't really have any friends, and she seems to at least be a kind voice. I can get this shit off my head, too, so I just spill it. She's smiling and nodding, even though it gets weird, like the part about Sarah and Jeremy and not finding the book in the library and having to go back. It's not there. She doesn't freak out. She just continues to listen. I, I finish, and she looks at me. Wow, she goes, that's a hell of a story. I nod. There's a pause, and the chatter at the back bar washes over us like a weighted blanket, close and comforting as the sudden turn of a weird wind blows past. Did you ever figure out what was wrong with your friend's dick? Not really. I was thinking about this. I tapped the book. Well, that seems simple enough, she says and smiles. Oh, really? Uh, I can't help it. I'm smiling back. Somehow the act of just telling someone and not having them immediately reject me is super relieving. Do tell. Yeah, she says. It seems pretty obvious to me why you can't find it. Why is that? Because it doesn't want to be found. I nod. That's that's totally ludicrous. She cocks her head and looks at me in disbelief. Is it, though? I mean, is that the weirdest thing either one of us has said tonight? Because I listen to your story. I totally get it. I believe it. But I'm telling you, that place doesn't want to be found. Okay. Okay, I reply, letting that sink in. If that's the case, why? She looks over the bar for a moment, thinking, and then back at me, full force in the eye. The flame from the enclosed fire pit in the outdoor area reflects for a moment, and it's all green irises. You said you just kind of got there each time, mainly because you were alone. Maybe it just wanted to speak to you. Houses don't magically disappear and reappear when they want to. Yeah, tell me what part of the situation seems ordinary. I nod. There's some, if not the uh, truth to this, at least logic. But what if I go back? Will it be there, you think? Do you want to go back? She looks at me intently. I don't know. It seemed cool at first, but now it seems a little sinister. 
Maybe the little free library feels that way about you, she says. And then Lee said, hey, do you want to come back to my place and see my bitch in stereo? I laughed. Is that, is that like a come on? I guess she goes, if you're lucky, I, I like tall dishwashers with a pension for finding little free libraries at ghost houses. Niche market, I reply. You are the first one. We go to her house. Her name is Jen, but she goes by Jiffy. It is good. This has been Double Deuce Podcast. If you thought the intro sounded bad, this outro sounds even worse. Thanks for listening. I don't know how you did, but if you're trying to listen to more, we're everywhere. Libsyn, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, fucking everywhere. That's right. Wherever fine podcasts are made, we'll be there. Also, you can reach out to us on social medias. We're at Double Deuce Pod on Twitter. We're at Double Deuce Podcast on Facebook. And our email is DoubleDeucePod at gmail.com. Finally, if you want to support us, get our Patreon on Patreon.com backslash Double Deuce Pod. Yeah, we got all kinds of stuff on there. We got me talking about things I'm seeing. We got extra minis, like the minis you find in the Decaduces. We got Will singing. Or if you want to pay for him not to sing, there is a way to pay for no singing. The world's your oyster. All kinds of stuff. All kinds of stuff. So much stuff. That's Patreon.com backslash Double Deuce Pod. Yeah! Yeah! Sorry, when you're like, wherever fine podcasts are found, I just kept thinking about that Tom Jones speech at the end of Grapes Wrath. It's like, well, there's a cop beating on a fine podcast. We'll be there. <laughs> Double deuce. Good episode.